0: The dramatic finale, act four. Um, There are a number of items I want us to touch on, but the most important would be for, to give you an even longer time to ask me these questions because in 45 minutes, we'll all be gone, and some of you may never see me again. No. no. I have your number. <laughs> <laughs> I changed it. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, gosh! However hard I try, I just can't get away. <laughs> I have put uh, four scenes here um, in, in, in act four. The first is the, is the Brerley committee report. Mr. Brearley is the chair of this committee and this is the leftovers committee. And their most important contribution is settling the issue on the creation of the presidency. that issue was perhaps the thorniest of all. That's why I can't quite understand Hamilton in the Federalist Papers where he discusses the executive and says it was the easiest of all to settle. And probably because he wasn't there half the time. But the, but the real problem is, is this. Shall we have three presidents or one? Well, I can't answer that I mean, why would you want three? Because I don't want a monarch. So why don't I have a, one north, one middle, one south, one for domestic relations, one for war, one for such and such D- division, of, division of labor? Why don't I have three, not one? Well, I can't answer that question unless I know how long the president is going to serve. Well, I can't answer that question unless I know whether the president is going to be in for life or re-elected. Well, I can't answer that question unless I know whether the president can be impeached or not. I can't answer that until I know how the president is going to be elected by the people, by the states, by the governors, by the Congress and by what? Well I can't answer that question until I know what powers the president's going to have. I can't answer that question until I know how many, whether there's going to be one president, two presidents, or three presidents. And so this, it's not that they didn't talk about the president, it's not left over in the sense, oh, we've got to finally get around to it, but they couldn't break into that circle and, and, and set something in motion in a more linear fashion than a circular fashion. and some, what the Brerly Committee did was to come up with the scissors and they said let's focus on how the president is to be elected and work from there. And what that decision did of course was to refresh the discussions which they had ha- had re- previously on are we going to represent wealth, are we going to represent the states, are we going to represent the people. And there were advocates for each. Pinckney from South Carolina thought that the president should have 100. This is talking about those days, right? 100,000 pounds in wealth, so that the president wouldn't be bribed. Well, you know, you're talking a billionaire right now, but she's probably close to what presidents actually have. But the idea of putting that in as a requirement. Uh, is demonstrates the importance with, which Pinckney, for example, put on Web. He was hooted down and never got anywhere. The real argument is, is, is shouldn't be surprising. Shall the people elect the president in one form or another, whether through districts or uh, statewide or whatever, or shall the states do the electing, which shall be, say, the governors or the state legislatures? And guess what happened? The answer is a compromise happened. There are some times when a compromise is decent, there are other times when a compromise doesn't seem so decent. And this compromise was we shall elect a president of the United States rather than a president of America. The people of America shall not directly elect, we shall elect electors who shall be, uh, each state be awarded a number of electoral college votes equal to the amount of population that they have in the House and equal to the number of senators, which is two in the Senate. You add the two together, and that will be their electoral college vote. You as a citizen will act as a Californian. Your vote shall not cross state lines. Unfair, undemocratic. Change it. Amend it. Say that the president shall be directly elected. There's nothing to stop you from doing that. It's too hard. (laughs) Stop whining. Do it. Grow up. So once you have settled on this combination of the states and the people, partly national, partly federal, going to elect the president of the United States, you're going to have a built-in problem. They go to those who want it to represent the nation. The progressives want a nas- national democracy. You're going to have every four years, you're going to have people screaming, particularly if their candidate comes close to losing or loses the national vote. This is undemocratic. It's old-fashioned. It's anachronistic. It's 18th century. And those, on the other hand, who argue that we want balance and whatnot, you don't want a cat. You know, part of the problem with Lincoln is that he, he was elected just from the North. Nobody from the South elected Lincoln. Uh, most of our presidents, fortunately, partly by accident, partly by design, have not just won the East Coast or the West Coast or the North or the South. They've won a combination. And for half a century in, in the 20th century, the battle was California and New York. If you wanted a close race, one, one side would win New York, the other side would win California. If you want a lopsided race, then once I will win both. And you had a geographical element. To what extent is geography, not that just Montana versus Alaska versus California, but to what extent does geography matter? Sectionalism, that kind of, in a large republic, to what extent is that an important dimension? Or are we just not interested in state boundaries anymore? So what the Brearley Committee did was to settle that question, which I think is extremely important. And we can change it. The second most important thing that happened in Act Four was the, um, the Committee on Style Report. On, on September the 10th, just as, just as the committee on style is about to, to meet now, what the, the committee on is so-called committee on style, but what its job was was to take the Virginia plan, the amended, the New Jersey, the discussions, the, the committee on detail report, the provisions dealing with the slave trade, such and, such and such, sit down and write a decent, readable, Hannibal document that can fit into your back pocket, not like the California Constitution. <laughs> Okay, And that means, there you go. And so you can fit into your back pocket or your purse. And you might, you never know, read it one day. And they did do precisely that. But it's interesting who got on that committee. They had to be elected by the delegates. The precise way in which they're elected, we don't know but I find it absolutely fascinating that the following five get elected. You can almost guess with me what's gonna happen. One has to come from Massachusetts. And it turns out to be Rufus King, high-toned. One has to come from Pennsylvania. Governor Morris, high-toned. One has to come from Virginia, James Madison. One has to come from Connecticut, Johnson. And there's one has to come from somewhere else because you have to have five. South Carolina has been handled. Whether well or poorly, it's been handled. It was only really interested in one thing. Don't emancipate the slaves. Well, certainly not before 1808. And the question was, what is is interesting about 1808? Is that just, I mean, I could see 1800 as a specific important date. What's 1808? 1808 means a, um, a generation. From 1787, 1788, 20 years. And if the earth belongs to the living, you should not burden the next generation with your difficulties. That is the blessings of liberty for you and your posterity. Your posterity is the next generation. And Why would you want to put the next generation into debt? Why would you want to put the next generation? If you have it in your clout to be able to make life for the next generation freer or better, why don't you do it? So 1808, uh, but that wasn't good enough for four, for, for, for four delegations, they wanted it 1800 to start a new millennium. It was more important to start a new century than it was to start a new generation. Um, but that's but that's the reason why 1808 is not simply arbitrary. Um, so, what is the fifth state? Which is the fifth state? And the answer is New York. Lansing and Yates aren't there, that is true. All the better, who is? Hamilton's returned. So there you have the Committee on Style, all high-toned. So what is going to happen with the Constitution is is that it's going to be elevated, that the presidency is going to be elevated a bit, the federal government is going to be elevated, the language is going to be more elegant. They're going to get a higher, that by the way, I would argue is, that is where Hamilton and Madison really first worked together. That's the origin of the Federalist Papers. When the Federalist Papers starts defending the Constitution, it's pretty much defending the Committee on Style. Because the Committee on Style becomes, with one or two minor changes, becomes the Constitution. Uh, Governor Morris was, was invited to join, uh, well, was considered to be invited to join Hamilton Madison with the Federalist Papers, but I think Hamilton said they didn't think he was up he was sufficiently bright enough for the task. Um, but the committee on style and is high-toned, high-toned people. Okay. And these are the five who get on. And they write a preamble, and Governor Morris is probably the most responsible for the preamble, and it's we the people, the United States, do ordain and establishes, it clearly establishes the premise of consent of the government, which, which Madison was, was very much in favor of. And there are six purposes, and four purposes are uh, what most politicians political communities would go for as general welfare, common defense, domestic tranquility, uh, uh, and uh, just sort of basic law and order. And then you've got two which are very American, which make America somewhat distinctive from other lands, liberty and justice. And then that doesn't mean to say we all know what liberty is or what justice is, or which comes first, but, the, the, but that's, the, that's the mission statement. And what are the interesting issues in the in this mission statement or preamble, as it became known, yeah, as, um, <clears throat> that the states uh, that the states who are, and people who are joining aren't listed, which is different than the previous preambles or missions in constitutional doctrine by by by, the, um, by, by Americans. And why is that? Because you can't create a timeless document if you write so much historical timeliness into it. So that every single, I mean if you're 13 states and you reach to 50, you're gonna to have to change the document 37 times every time a new state comes in. Let's get about 10 at one time. Which means it helps to create a, the rule, respect for the rule of law and a timeliness timelessness if you don't have to date it right up front. Now, there are a couple of areas where it is dated, like the Seventh Amendment talking about um, you can't file um, lawsuits over a certain amount, and this, that, and the other. I mean, that really uh, dates the document. But as long as, and 1808 dates the document. But other than that, there's an attempt in a Constitution not to date the document. Uh, and and that, re- that encourages respect for the rule of law rather than, have you seen the latest version? And then it's very, very straightforward. You start Article I, the legislative branch. Article II, the executive branch. Article Three, the judiciary branch. Neat, clean, tidy. Why the legislative branch? First, it's the single most important branch in a constitutional republic. It is the longest Then comes the executive, then comes the judiciary, which happens to be the shortest and third. Article four, interstate relations. What one state owes another state. When you move from one state to another state, what what can you expect as Americans as you you move? Article five, how you amend the Constitution. And the emphasis again is on this Connecticut Compromise. It's a combination of um, people and states. In Article 6, when the ships are down, who's boss? The supreme law of the land. And then we can look in Article 1, go into detail. Article 1, Section 1, we're having bicameralism, two chambers. Doesn't have to be. French decided on one chamber and it ended in a reign of terror. More democratic, maybe. More violent, definitely. Must we be violent in order to be democratic? Must we, uh, If we are democratic, does that mean that we must be violent? Can't we have uh, liberty and order? Can't we have ordered liberty? Article 1, Section 2 deals with the House. That's where the Three-Fifths Clause comes in. Why would it occur there? Because it deals with the issue of representation and deals with the with, uh, who can be a representative and how how they are elected. Article 1, Section 3 deals with the Senate. No issue of representation. One state, two votes. You settle that. Um, Who elects them? The Senate. Change that? Yep. 17th Amendment does that. Article 1, Section 4, time, place, manner. In other words, where where are elections held? Presumption, all elections are held within, within each state, but Congress may from time to time alter the time and manner. Has it? Yep. It is said that on the first Tuesday after the second Monday in November, there shall be, otherwise, states can hold elections whenever the heck they want to. Man, this is state-based. Welcome to the crowd. No congressional district c- can cross state lines. Article 1, Section 5 and Section 6 indicates how Congress shall work. The speech and debate clause. Um, the pay of Congress cannot be changed. Yep, 27th Amendment, a guy called, um, I forget his last name, Gr- Davis, Gregory Davis, uh, a, a, a political science student, uh, got a C for his paper where he argued that the original framers' understanding of restraining the the, the pay of, of, of members of Congress should uh, should be in the Constitution. In, 19, in the 1980s, he he did a single campaign and you talk about making a difference, that's where civic education and civic engagement join. Um, I, I point like this and because one of the fascinating discussions the three of us had over dinner was what is the relationship between civic engagement and civic education and I introduced our talk today by saying that I think civic education is the necessary condition um, but not the sufficient condition. That is, it's like uh, life is the necessary condition, but liberty is the sufficient condition. But you can't have liberty without life. But life without liberty is, is um, not free. The, uh, art, article 1, um, section 7 is how, uh, is, is how a bill becomes a law. You get the presidential veto. There's nothing there which says when the president signs, the president can say whatever the heck, this is what I mean. Um, One of the very interesting questions over the last hundred years, or particularly since the New Deal, has been the increase in the importance of the presidency and presidential elections. And that is a continuing issue, not just among uh, liberals, but conservatives. And it seems to me it depends on which one of your folks are in power as to whether you become more embracing on the presidency. But certainly the presidency has increased. Article 1, Section 8, you got the listing of the powers of Congress. General welfare clause, interstate commerce clause, necessary and proper clause. That comes right out of the Committee on Detail. Nothing really added by the Committee on Style on that one. Article 1, Section 9, restraint on Congress. <coughs> that comes out of the committee in detail as refined. And I want to stop at one moment and take a look at what the final wording is on the slave trade. Article 1, Section 9, and I'd like you to help me on that in a moment. We'll come back to it. Article 1, Section 10 <coughs> is um, restraints, uh, re- re- restraints on the states, what the states can't do. And, and that's Article One. So you can see federalism at work. You can see the, uh, the and the establishment of the legislative branch. Article Two has three sections. Uh, sorry, four sections. How do I become president? What powers do I have? Unconditionally. What powers do I have conditionally? And how do I become unpresident? <laughs> article Three is the judiciary. Interestingly enough, there is no qualifications for office in the judiciary, and by goodness, we follow that rule. (laughs) (laughs) There's no citizenship requirement. (laughs) By goodness, we follow that rule. (laughs) It's amazing that it's the one office for which you don't have to be a certain age, a resident of a state, or anything. Um, And it's the one office in which you are pretty much guaranteed a job for life. Um, it should be watched cleverly, and cleverly. Uh, article one, uh, excuse me, Article four, interstate relations, where you've got the um, uh, privileges and immunity clause, uh, full faith and credit clause, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and it really makes a lot of sense. If, if you look at the document, it's stylistically and it's not just, I mean, it reads well, it reads coherently. It is not simply, as some historians say, a bundle of compromises. There's a coherence to it. There's an interpretive guide to it. Um, the three-fifths clause occurs in Article I, Section Two, representation. The slave trade clause occurs in Article I, Section Nine, which is a restraint on what Congress can do. The Fugitive Slave Clause occurs in Article 4, right after the Extradition Clause. At one time, they were together, but then through the debates in, um, in, 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 in Act 4, they were separated. So now, let me ask Kathy to, to, to first, just to go back a moment. And to take a look at what is the exact language. I'm going to stop you from time to time. But just, just you, you know me well enough, you'll continue after I've stopped you. So, so according to Article 1, Section 9, which is the final version of the slave trade.
1: The migration of importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper...
0: Stop. As any of the states now existing, that means this restraint on Congress... Is only a restraint with regard to the 13 states now existing. New states coming in, not even 1800, not even 1808. New states, the whole concept now, will not be covered by this. Congress can make restraints, right? And it says, think proper. It doesn't say it's proper. As those states may think proper to admit. There's no mention of the word justice. There's no mention, right, it's think proper. Now we know that half the states don't think it proper. So what happens if Massachusetts doesn't want the slave trade to come in to Boston Harbor? Can they turn to Congress and say, we want your help? The answer is yes. Can Congress respond? The answer is yes. Did Congress respond? The answer is yes. So to continue.
1: Shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year one thousand eight hundred and eight, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding ten dollars for each person.
0: Right. Now, think about it. It doesn't say property is person. There's a tax on it, and what uh, that created quite an argument. You, you shouldn't be by taxing it. You're giving it a certain dignity, but on the other side is that if you tax it, you're giving a disincentive. Because you're making it more costly to, 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 to bring in.
1: Okay. The privilege of the writ
0: of Hideous Corpus? Right, no, no, that's fine. We've done it. So Article 1, Section 9 is final document. What I want you to do is to is to think. Act in Act Three, the beginning, the Committee on Detail report said Congress shall never, ever prohibit the slave trade. The final document says Congress shall not prohibit the slave trade to the existing states that think proper to admit it prior to 1808, but we can tax it. I would argue that that's a shift. That's a shift in a Lincolnian interpretation direction. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I now invite you to take a look at the third slave trade, slave clause, right? Number one is three fifths. Number two is the slave trade. Number three is the fugitive slave clause. If you take a look at article four, first thing I want you to look at is the what is known as the extradition clause. <laughs> if somebody escapes from one state to another, he must be given up.
1: Oh, okay. Charging, charge privileges charged with treason authority of the state fled from a switch fled and delivered up to be removed. That's state right. The All right,
0: so we're going to look at Article 4, Section, Section 2, 2, and we're going to compare two paragraphs.
1: Okay, so the idea of flee versus escaping.
0: Right, so the first one is that no person... Oh, it says
1: right there, Right. Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, Me? Yes, is please. charged in any state for treason, felony, or other crime, who shall flee from justice and be found in another state, shall on demand of the Executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime.
0: Okay, translated. That's the extradition clause. That is, if you commit a crime in one state and you flee to California in order to, in order to escape justice and you're discovered in California, the, the, the governor of California doesn't have a choice, has to give you up on demand, to go back to Louisiana, wherever it was, for you to face trial. That's the extradition clause. What Mr. Butler and others from South Carolina wanted in Act 4 was to include slaves within that. So that if a fugitive slave escaped, they would be on demand, be brought up, et cetera. So you would have one clause covering criminals and covering... um, slaves who escaped into freedom. But he didn't get his way. Instead, there is a separate clause covering fugitive slaves. It comes right after extradition, and it reads.
1: No person held in service or labor in one state under the laws thereof. Oh,
0: good. Stop it, under the laws thereof. The one word that is missing is justice. It doesn't say it's just, under the laws thereof.
1: Therefore escaping into another. Shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from the from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom right. such service and labor may be.
0: The key for me is it doesn't say on demand, it says on claim. That is, you have to file in court and claim that. This is a famous case, so I'm saying it because it's the famous case. Negro Ben. And, the, and so, what has to be said is that, M- Mr. Ben, I claim that you are Mr. Ben and you are my slave, and I make this claim, and I have to make it in Ohio or a federal court. And what the 1850 compromise did, and when we go back to what happened in the 1850s, it changed that. It said that you could make your claim in Mississippi. You could make your claim on Obama. In Alabama, excuse me. (laughs) Some of the best jokes are what you don't intend. (laughs) It's getting late. Uh, uh, Talk about a post-racial president. You think that's funny, don't you? To to, To see your teacher just make a, ass of himself yeah sorry arse Um, (coughs) can't believe it Uh, so that's what the 1850 compromise did that you no longer have to make it's almost like a demand you've changed a claim into a demand whereas under the early congressional laws enforcing that that provision <clears throat> the, the the burden of proof was on the slave master to prove that you were a slave. And that if you were in Ohio and the claim was made, the slave had the right to, to, a, to counsel, and the right to a jury trial. Once you get to 1850s, that's gone. And then we have started to become more like a slaveholder's document again. And I think it's much too easy just to simply say that the founders systemically created a slaveholder's document. And that, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, that makes the story much too simple, that it misses the ups and the downs, and particularly my comment that, the, that we somehow progressively assume that the next generation is going to be better than us. And uh, history has demonstrated that that is not necessarily true, and I can, I can vouch for the fact that when I graduated in the 60s, I was told that I was the best generation to ever live. I believed it, so that anything over the last 40 years, when students have started to graduate, I have told them that you are not the best generation. I am, and you're and you're worse than I am, and therefore you've just got to live within your inferiority and low self-esteem as a as a consequence. Okay. Three representatives decided to dissent. They gave their reasons. Mr. Randolph, who introduced the Randolph Plan, dissented. What he wanted was a second convention. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Let's take everything that we've done, go to the states, get their opinion, come back, meet again, I'd I'd do it. Madison says, one miracle in Philadelphia is enough. (laughs) And he finally managed to persuade Randolph to come around in ratification. Mr. Jerry um, dissented, Mr. Mason dissented, and both of them dissented, in part because there was no Bill of Rights. And they got worried because once the committee on style came out with this high-toned approach, they're really creating a government that can do things. And once you do that, then you need to beef up what a government can't do or be clear about what a government can't do. And that's where a Bill of Rights comes in. What a, what a government can't do. And rights, the whole idea of a Bill of Rights has gone through a rather dramatic shift. So ever since the New Deal, a Bill of Rights is what a government can do rather than what a government can't do. So there are two conversations. If you look at, at FDRs, there are four freedoms. Two what government can't do and two what government should do. And the whole welfare state is based on what government should do rather than what government can't do. But I still think that's the argument. And we should be asking the question What can government do, what should government do? And if we decide that one, which level of government should do it? And if we decide that one, we should be asking the question, which branch of which level of government should be doing it? Should we leave everything to the judiciary? Some things to the judiciary. Everything to the president? Some things to the president. Everything to Congress? Some things to Congress. Some things to the state? Everything to the states. And and that's the continuing American narrative. And so when we pull the curtain down, on Act One, um, it is useful to take a look at Ben Franklin's. So I did remember Ben Franklin's speech, in September the seventeenth. If we go to Madison's notes of the debates and <clears throat> go right to the end, um, you will you see that they're coming up to sign, which is what the Christie painting is is is, is all about. And they're they're signing away, and uh, keep scrolling right to the very. Yeah, keep, keep. Number 24. Um, number 24. No, no, yeah, we yeah, 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 we passed it. Whilst, whilst the, this is Madison reporting. While the last members were signing it, Dr. Franklin, looking towards the president chair, at the back of which a rising sun happened to be painted, observed to a few members near him, that painters had found it difficult to distinguish in their art a rising from a setting sun. I have said he often and often in the course of the session and the vicissitudes of my hopes and fears as to its issue looked at that behind the president without being able to tell whether it was a rising or setting. But now at length I have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun. That's the famous rising sun speech in which she, uh, which she made. And in the beginning of that day, Franklin gives his talk about, we're in the business of making a more perfect union, not a perfect union. And that becomes the campaign, in effect the campaign slogan, a more perfect union. Which is, this is a more perfect union than the articles. Could it be, a per- Could it be even more perfect? Yes. And I guess that's the job of the next generation. Any closing questions that you might have? Yes? Oh, the yes. You know, now that we're in the year 2013,
1: there's a lot more educated people, you know, populace. Mm-hmm. Um, We've got a larger populace going on here. Story has always been: Why like, can't we take, do away with the electoral college, and take the popular college per district versus by state? And it would actually probably give a more true feeling of who should be considered president versus.
0: What you've called the Electoral College, you have identified as virtually each state follows a winner-take-all. There's nothing in the Constitution to require that. So we don't need a constitutional amendment to change that. Each state, because it controls the elections which take place within its state, county, local, state, national elections, any election which takes place within a state, has pretty much control over how that election is going to turn out. There is no national ballot. The Mississippi ballot and the New York ballot, the Illinois ballot are different than the California ballot. But but to, to get to your point, there is no requirement that each state must award all the Electoral College votes to the winner of the popular vote in the state. In fact, two or three states do not do that. They go by district. That is totally up to each state to do, and I think that each state should be able to decide that. Why do each state so far decide that they're gonna go winner-take-all? Because they think that their state gets more clout. Is that a legitimate activity? The answer is yes, if we're partly national, partly federal. If you think that those days are over or should be over, as a lot of people do think, and by the passage of um, amendments like the the 15th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, indicate that we've become more and more and more national judicial opinions. At one time, a woman could have an abortion depending on the state in which she lived. Are you seriously saying that abortion depends on the accident of where a woman lives? Well, I wouldn't exactly call it an accident, but at the same time, I would, to, to, to buy into your argument, the answer is yes. How undemocratic? How unfair? To which I answer, how federal? And if you don't like that notion that, that where you live and where you reside have uh, an important protective constitutional provision, then you change it. There's one impetus, the one that you've just given about winner-take-all, that does not require a constitutional amendment. All you have to do is to go and persuade your state legislators, which is going to take some doing. <laughs> but, you, but you persuade your state legislatures and the governor to change to winner of the district, wins, the, wins the, that, that, that district. You could, maybe you could have California do it just simply in popular vote. In fact, California has passed a law, which I find is very, it's, it's rather um, uh, uh, unfortunate, but it has passed a law we, on the books right now that the winner of the popular vote nationwide, if twelve states agree, and it's part of a consortium, and California is part of that consortium, if will join that consortium and cast their electoral votes in favor of the winner of the popular vote across the nation in order to avoid Bush versus Gore, et cetera, et cetera. I I can just imagine if um, Romney had done better and won as he thought he was going to win right up till the end, had beaten Obama nationally in the national popular vote, California having to give 50-something electoral votes to Romney. They wouldn't have done it. You know darn well, it would have been impeachment of the Democrats in California legislature right away. All of a sudden, they become states' rights advocates. Mm -hmm. So what bothers me about a lot of these arguments is that they're very politically driven, very short-sightedly driven, and rather than American driven. And all of you who are in civic education, I I can vouch for the fact that, that, that the returns which you get are not capable of being properly assessed by assessors that despite the fact that they want immediate results, those results are not what count. And whatever skepticism I might have or hope I might have for common standards, it still depends on the teacher. And somebody like Judy, who graduated from Redlands in my Redlands days, which was somewhere between 19, see how protective I am of you? Somewhere between 1969 and 1997. Well, now you've just aged yourself. But somebody like that keeps coming back and keeps being dedicated. And you've got Alex at the back there who is just starting, right? And, and, and you've got Kathy who comes from the, 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 the MAG program. That's what it's all about. You cannot assess that, it, 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 despite the fact that Kathy's a bother. <laughs> I was under the belief that when the Constitution was ratified, it basically just replaced the Articles of Confederation, and they were essentially done away with. A uh, friend of mine showed me an article where the argument was that the, uh, the article that the Constitution was actually an amendment to the Articles of Confederation. Comment on that. Well. If you follow the directive from the Confederation Congress, uh, the Grand Convention in Philadelphia was supposed to come up with amendment proposals to amend the Articles of Confederation and send those back to Congress for congressional, for existing approval by the existing Congress, which would require the the unanimity of all 13 states. Um, The delegates, most of the delegates who met in Philadelphia thought that merely amending the Constitution in terms of powers was not going to be enough to make the union work. So they came up with what they would call an alternative plan, which is the Constitution. Now, is it an amendment? To the articles? In a sense, yes, but it's a grand amendment to the articles. Um, Did they go back to the Congress? The answer is yes. Did they seek the congressional approval for these proposals? The answer is yes. Did they get it? The answer is no. What did they get? Go forth and persuade the people. Part of the amending process under the articles was that the articles would be amended by 13 state legislatures unanimity. Part of the adoption of the Constitution required the adoption by nine out of 13 specially called conventions, so that they amended the amendment process. So your friend is both right and not quite right. Yet it did alter the amendment. The Constitution is an amendment to the Articles, but it doesn't amend the Articles in the way in which the Articles call for amendments. It amended the amendment process. I mean, you follow what I'm getting at? And There's a low ground and a high ground explanation. The low ground explanation is why do all this work and come up with a more perfect union if Rhode Island is gonna say no? We've just wasted our time. The high ground is we need to set the new constitution on a firm foundation of consent of the governed. The Articles of Confederation was a wartime document in which 13 existing states joined, and we had to do it that way in order to proceed with the general welfare and common defense for, for the wartime effort. This is not the way to establish and ordain uh, a, a, a government of, on, by, and for the people. I
1: assume you know Mark Levin, radio talk show of this. His new
0: book. Yeah, yeah, I've got it, but I, I'm, 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 I'm flipping through it, uh, but go ahead. I just
1: wonder if you could comment on his new book. I don't know if it's...
0: Well, it is in the sense that when I have I flipped through it. I'm going to spend some time on it because I'm, somebody's going to interview me on the book, and I, 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 I had something important to do this week. <laughs> uh, I, uh, but, but basically, I want to know from all of these people, where is the constitutional crisis? If you're going to alter the Constitution by amending the Constitution, how will that, amendment, preserve liberty. Um, I know that he is calling for the, the alternative way of, of, um, of holding a constitutional convention, Alex and I have chatted about this, that there are two ways. One way is that Congress proposes amendments to the states. The other way is that two thirds of, of the state legislatures call on Congress to call a constitutional convention That way has never quite managed to make it, and the last time it made it, this is what we got. I would rather trust Madison's constitution than anything Levitton would come up with. That's my short answer. Um, My long answer is I need to pay more attention to the specific amendment proposals that he makes. (laughs) But but, but I'm thinking, what might those amendment proposals be? Term limits? Um, Alex, do you know? Well, I would say that Mark Levin's argument is that every time the Supreme Court meets, it's a constitutional
1: convention.
0: Well, that is how the liberals have portrayed it. And we don't need a constitutional amendment in order to stop The Supreme Court acting like a constitutional convention. What we need to do is to get civic education knowing that we live under a constitution, but the constitution is not what the Supreme Court says it is. Somehow, in the last hundred years, law schools and judges have acquired this notion that we live under a constitution, but the constitution is what the court says it is. All right. Fine, I agree with him that we shouldn't live under that kind of situation. I agree with him that that almost turns the court into a constitutional convention. I agree. What is the solution? The solution is for Congress to act under its own existing powers. The number of judges on the court is not stated in Article 3. You could raise them to 15 right now. Roosevelt did it. (gasps) But you could do it, you could raise it to 15 right now. Of course, it wouldn't pass the Senate, and the president might not sign it, but you could do that. It says you shall not cut the judge's pay. Fine, let's not increase it. (laughs) Encourage them to go back to the private sector. You want to play politics with it? See, we could play politics with this. I don't see what the constitutional crisis is. It's a political crisis, a crisis of will. Congress controls the appellate jurisdiction of the court. 99.9% of the court cases that land up the Supreme Court are by appellate jurisdiction. What has Congress done? You can say here whatever case you want to hear. What could Congress do? We have decided that 99.9% of your cases you're not going to hear. Well, I guess you have nothing to do, do you? Great. Just go fishing. Go to law schools and lecture. I mean, I, you follow what I'm getting at? I mean, Congress currently has the authority. <coughs> the, the court cannot even set up its own dis- structure. The number of district courts, the number of circuit courts, et cetera, depends totally on Congress. What Congress has done has deferred, it has lost its constitutional. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not as constitutionally strong as it ought to be. Do you like that self-restraint? <laughs> you don't like that self-restraint. I can tell in your eyes, you wish I'd said what you thought I was gonna say. <laughs> Power, that's what I was gonna say. Yes, sir? to the selective enforcement by the executive branch of The selective enforcement? Yes, the, the office of the president, the executive is able to select what they're going to enforce. Yes. That's I, I would argue that if we take, is that a constitutional crisis? Not necessarily. That's a political crisis. Congress currently has the authority to stop that. Congress can say you cannot selectively enforce. In fact, Congress said that to Richard Nixon when uh, under the, uh, sort of the Impoundment of Funds Act. And Nixon said, oh, I don't want to spend that money. And Congress says, you shall. And Nixon says, I'm not going to, I veto it. And so what Congress said, it was overturned, Nixon's veto, and I shall not impound the Funds Act. And of course, if you then refuse, I mean, the, the president has the power to veto. Congress has the power to overturn the veto. Well, we don't have the votes. Get them. Don't think that just because you don't have the votes, you've cre- there's a constitutional crisis. That is, you're not persuading people. You don't have the votes. Persuade them. That this, this president or that president or some president is now assuming selective enforcement. Where do they get the power from? They get away with it. Why do they get away with it? Because Congress is not acting like a Congress, would be my answer. What can Congress do about it? As I just said, overturn a veto. And If the president then decides, I am not going to enforce your overturning of my veto, impeach. If you've got enough votes to overturn a veto of a president, you have enough votes impeach the president and convict him out of office, it's the same number of votes, if the president is going to be that stupid. Now, you say, that's playing politics. Uh, You don't think the court and the president are playing politics? I think what has happened ever since the New Deal is that we have some... ever since the New Deal, historians, textbooks, whatever, have taught us that there's only one main show. And that happens every four years. And it's known as the presidential election where the people, if we could only get a, do, do away with the electoral college, mandate the president to be able to do such and such and such a thing. That is our politics. That is what American democracy is all about. And then somehow, unfortunately, there's this something called midterm. What's midterm about midterm elections? It's only because it occurs midway to a presidential election. What's an off-year election? That's what we call congressional elections, off-year and midterm. How demeaning. Why don't we say that presidential elections only occur in leap years? (laughs) Which is true. Think about it. One more day for them to serve. I have no, look, this I hope is not being interpreted in a partisan way. I'm a democratic, republican. May the blessings of liberty be secure for yourself and your posterity. Go out and ordain and be blessed. (laughs) Thank you.